Well, good morning on this spring break. Is it dark enough for you out there? Stumbling over things again this morning. Gentlemen, we have been studying the sermons of Jesus, and we're on the fourth one that Matthew records. It's a very important one in Matthew 18. And what Matthew teaches us is that not only our Christian character, our view of the big, our big view of the kingdom, uh, and our sense of mission into the world is vital to our discipleship, but the way in which we get along with each other in personal relationships, and particularly and especially the church, is vital to our discipleship. When Jesus told us to go make disciples, he said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the discipleship of a believer includes inclusion into the church. And so in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching us about relationships. And you'll remember uh, from our previous studies that it begins with our humbling ourselves. We're not going to be able to establish meaningful, proper, loving, uh, mutually affectionate relationships in the church unless we humble ourselves. It's always pride that keeps us from connecting and serving another person as we ought to. And then he talked about, you remember in verses 6 through 9, about how we begin by dealing with our own sin, that self-discipline is the beginning of those relationships. So we self-discipline ourselves in humility, that is, to take on the very nature of a little child and take on the place of honor that a child gets, which in the first century was nothing. So we take that place, and then we begin to deal with ourselves so that we don't hinder somebody else's Christian life. And Jesus said, if, if you even had to go so far as to cut off your right hand or your right foot, if that's what's causing you to sin against your brother, get rid of it. If it even if it's your eye, gouge it out. You're much better off uh, mutilating yourself than you are causing someone else to trip up in their walk with Jesus. So that's how he starts this chapter. Then when we come to verses 10 through 20, the text we're going to study today, we see that he says to us, you're not only responsible for your own character and your own performance morally, but you bear some responsibility for the moral behavior of your brother, your brother in Christ. And there's a way in which we carry out that obligation, that responsibility. And this is amazing. Most people, when they talk about the doctrine of sanctification, it's all the doctrine of individual sanctification. And I, certainly that's appropriate that we emphasize that because the Bible seems to emphasize that. But the Bible also talks about corporate sanctification. That we must learn not only how to be sanctified ourselves through mortification of the flesh and vivification of the life of the Spirit, but we learn how to mortify the flesh of the whole body of Christ and vivify the things of the Spirit in the body of Christ. And so many people miss this. And therefore, they go to the church and they're wondering, why am I here? Well, I suppose it's here. I'm here because I need something. I, I need to hear the Word of God. I need to grow. I need some relationships. I need some encouragement. All those things are true. But you can see how self-centered and individualistic that is. Rather than when we enter the body of Christ, we're thinking about we need this. We need that. And I take my part in the ministry of Christ to the rest of the body. And Jesus is teaching clearly in this, in this sermon in Matthew 18 that that's the only way in which we can think properly about our own 
discipleship, that we have a mutual obligation within the body of Christ. Now, he's, he's going to show us in this text uh, how much he values the members of the body, and we'll see the kind of language he uses for that, uh, reminding us how important each of these members are to him. You may not know all the members in your church, and you may not care very much about all the members in your church, but let me tell you something. God knows all their names, and he cares intimately about every single one of them. He's passionate about every one of them. And he conveys that to us first. And then he shows us what we do if we get at odds with one of his children. What do we do about it? Well, there's something we're to do. And then he shows us that he is invested himself personally in the process of reconciling relationships within the body. Well, let's take a look at it then in Matthew 18 verses 10 through 20. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, let's look first of all at these first five verses, verses 10 through 14. And here we learn that we must pursue wandering brothers. Sorry about my voice. If it doesn't bother you, it won't bother me. Uh, we must pursue wandering brothers. Now, what you see in verse 10, first of all, is this very vivid description of Jesus' affection for his children. He's, he's suggesting that the angels are here to serve us and that our angels always see the face of God who is in heaven. That is, our servants, the angels, always have access to God, and it is to suggest that God has sent these angels for our protection. So angels are here to be our servants. They are protecting us constantly. Uh, sometimes we see them sometimes and don't know that we see them, and sometimes we don't see them, but they're here to protect us. God has sent angels to serve us. So if God has sent us such glorious beings to care for us, that must mean we're pretty important, right? And he's just reminding us as disciples, just remember, every brother 
has got a whole cadre of angels that are out there protecting him. Don't mess with him. Uh, he's a very, very important person. So he's con uh, God is, uh, Jesus is conveying here uh, God's concern because he's saying in A, verse 10, his sheep are dear to him. His sheep are dear to him. They're, and the word dear just means costly. And of course, they're so dear to him that he will send his only son to die for them, to pay the price for their salvation. So we've got to remember that when we're dealing in the church, even with cantankerous people, even with spiritually immature people, they're his people, and they are very, very precious to him. So they should be precious to us. Uh, and you'll notice in verses 12 through 13, not only do we learn that his sheep are dear to him, but here we learn all his sheep are dear to him, every single one of them. And he uses this, once again, very graphic illustration. He uses a shepherding illustration. If you've got 100 sheep and one of them wanders off, you don't say, well, shoot, 99 out of 100, that's not bad. 99%, I think that's an a, still an A+. Plus, you know, 99. Uh, and you just go on and say, you know, some sheep will be sheep. They just want to go over the hillside. So be it. I ain't leaving these 99 to go get that one. Uh, I'm just going to keep being sure these 99 have got grass and some water to drink. No, he says any shepherd, any shepherd will leave those 99 uh, and entrust them to God's providential care for a few moments, and he goes searching for that lost sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. He comes back with 100 sheep. And how often is it true that in our churches today that are largely uh, driven by a business and marketing model uh, we just grow the church up and, and you know, we want people to come in the front door. People are leaving the back door, but we don't really pay much attention. As long as more come in the front than go out the back, that's considered a successful church. You ever thought about this? As long as more people come in the back, than, uh, in the front, than leave in the back, your church is considered successful. And uh, that's not quite the model that Jesus is talking about here. He says you really need to change your mind on this. That as soon as they come in the front door and they join your community, then they are very precious. And if they slip out the side door or the back door, you go after them. So many of you are in church leadership positions. You're in eldership positions or spiritual leadership positions. And, you know, you just sometimes you'll just say, well, everybody makes their own choices. You know, it's not my business to be sticking my nose in their business. Well, yeah, it is. A good shepherd, a good elder, a good spiritual caregiver will go after that one. This is the reason that uh, so many of our churches really need to be thinking about your so-called inactive members. What are inactive members? Inactive members are the ones that went over the hillside. And once again, so often we're just happy if we've got lots of people in the pew and we don't have, sometimes in our larger churches, we don't even know if people aren't there anymore. We have no way of noticing their absence. There's so many people there. And what Jesus is saying, I've got a plan for you. The plan is that you watch out for everyone I put under your charge. You say, well, who are those people? Well, let me tell you who they are. They're the people who are on your membership roll if you're in a church. You say, ah, now I get it. I always wondered why we had this role. I've had, I've had many Christians ask me through the years, now why do we really need to even worry about a membership role? What does that have to do with the, with the Spirit of God? What does that have to do with real Christian character? I'll tell you what it has to do with Matthew 18. That when you put your name on the roll, in other words, when you're properly admitted to this church, 
I immediately become responsible for you if you go over the hill. That's what it means. If you're not a member of this church, I can preach to you, I can plead with you, I can teach you, I can counsel you, but it's not my moral obligation to go chasing you if you stop visiting Second Presbyterian Church. But if you profess your faith here and join this church, it becomes my responsibility. And I, I would encourage all of you that are in church leadership to be, to be aware of this and to use your influence to get your churches to take seriously what it means for someone to profess that they belong to the body of Christ under the care of that group of spiritual leaders. This is what it means. This is the reason, in my opinion, church membership is necessary for the Christian faith. You know, when Mark Dever was here about three years ago in our Christian Life Conference, and you can still pull this up off our website, he gave a talk on Saturday morning during the Christian Life Conference, and his point was, you cannot obey the New Testament without belonging to a church. And I, I think he's right. Now, you don't find the explicit verse in the New Testament, you should belong to a church, be a member of a church. But this is one of those texts, of course, he would be thinking about. How do you obey Matthew 18? If you have nobody you're responsible for, if you don't know who your flock is, how do you, how do you go after individual sheep that leave that flock? Every Christian should belong to a flock somewhere, and every flock should have spiritual leaders, and all the spiritual leaders should take care of all the sheep because Jesus not only considers his sheep dear to him, he considers all of his sheep dear to them. I remember the, the sensation that we had here uh, among us who were responsible for sheep when it finally occurred to us one year that we had about 600 people and we didn't know where they were. That's a lot of people, 600. Some of them, it turns out, were dead. Uh, some of them had married other people and had different last names, and some of them had moved out of town. Some of them had joined other churches, but we didn't know. 600 people. Do you know how long it took us to go through 600 people? About eight years. Because you have new inactives added to it. It took about eight years process. It was a huge process to get ourselves current so that eight years later we could say we actually have taken responsibility for every individual sheep who's part of this flock. It's very, very hard work. That's another reason people don't do it. Uh, they'd rather go after new, fresh faces and bodies who have a, this initial enthusiasm for joining your church, and we spend almost all of our time on that. And then when you get into church and you put all your time in these folks who some of them don't really, they're not really excited about being there with you, they kind of go over the hill and uh, you both just, you know, you're just happier for them to go ahead and be over the hill because they weren't real happy anyway. And you spend all your time with these others. A lot of complaints we get is, why should I go after those people and spend all that time when I've got these lost people out here I could be, I could be pursuing? Let me tell you something. It's the Bible, gentlemen. And so when you uh, come, become a Christian and you then become a churchman, you have some obligations. And you can't think of those obligations as simply taking you away from something more important. Jesus tells us what's important. That's what's important. And so when you come into community, you will end up in, in, with many obligations that take you away from talking to new people. The point is to figure out how to delegate all your responsibilities so that you're doing both it's both and. It's not either or. So we want to care for all of the sheep who come under your care. If you're leading a small group and you have 10 people and one of them wanders off and is in spiritual trouble, you know, 
Woe to us if we simply say, you know, nine of those folks are doing really well and not care for the tenth. Let's care for them. That's what Jesus said. His sheep are dear to him. All his sheep are dear to him. See, verse 14, they must be dear to us. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If you're in a large church like a good number of you are, you might ask the question, how can we possibly be responsible for hundreds of other believers? How could you expect us to be responsible for 600 people who don't come to church? Well, um, you do it. (laughs) I remember my dad was a pretty rough sort of Christian person. I've told you about him before, but every once in a while I go to him for advice. I remember the first church I served, I just, I said, Dad asked me how it was going. And I said, man, we just, we just got all kinds of issues, you know, with, with, with folks. And I said, I really don't even know, know where to start. And I'll never forget his answer. One at a time. <laughs> good, good. One at a time. That's how you do it. So if they're truly dear to us, we will, and I've put several things here. Number one, get to know them and their needs. If you belong to a large church with over 1,000 people, you can't get to know all those people intimately. Well, how about starting with one? Get to know somebody. Get yourself into a Sunday school class or a small group or a grow group or whatever you want to call them. Get into some group where you can begin to experience taking responsibility to encourage somebody else in their faith. You can begin to take responsibility for their lives when they need accountability. And uh, I always recommend that you have a small handful of guys to whom you're accountable. When you get into spiritual trouble, it ought to be a no-brainer to everybody around you. Oh, yeah, Joe, Bob, and John, they're the ones who need to intervene on that guy because they're his good friends. You will be as spiritually healthy as your friendships are because we're all going to need to be intervened on uh, at one point or another. We all need to be rebuked and confronted. So who can do that in your life? Do you have anybody that you've grown closely enough, that you trust enough, that you would listen to them when you're in spiritual danger? That's your obligation. And it's your obligation to be building those relationships so that you can intervene on some other guys when that's necessary. Secondly, develop a genuine affection for them. You say, how do I do that? You keep reading Matthew 18, 10 through 14. That's how you do it. You keep contemplating how much... God loves them. How much Christ loved them to spill his own blood for them. You contemplate these things. And as you begin to pray for them with thanksgiving and see them for who they really are, the children of God, you'll find your affections warming toward them even if they're very quirky. Thirdly, seek them out. So when you go to church, you are on a mission to seek people out. Most people go to church hoping someone will seek them out. You're here in Amen Bible Study. I'm telling you, you be the ones who are seeking other people out. You go to church and you go to your fellowship with a view to reaching out to other people instead of having people serve you. Fourthly, ask good questions and listen carefully. If someone is spiritually inactive or in a, in a period of spiritual torpor, you, you simply ask them how they're doing just say, you know what? I hadn't noticed you in Sunday school for a while. Is, is everything okay? You did all right. Did we offend you in any way? And listen carefully to what they say. Listen carefully. The, when you ask someone a question like that, if a, if a sheep has gone over the hill and you ask him a question, how are you doing? What's the answer going to be? Fine. Every time. That's the answer you're going to get. You've got to listen carefully. 
and ask carefully. He said, you say, how are you doing? I hadn't seen you lately. Oh, I'm doing fine. Well, you know what? We really miss you in Sunday school. Yeah, I know. I hadn't been there in a while. And most guys will say, well, I did my job. I at least asked a couple questions. No, why don't you ask another question? Well, is there, is there some reason? Is there anything that we've done to offend you? No, no, no. Y'all haven't offended me. Most people leave that and say, I've asked him enough questions. No, you hadn't asked enough questions. Uh, well, do you, mind, do you mind telling me what, you know, what's, what's going on? Well, there's something going on in my life. And most guys would take that as enough. You know, obviously, he shut the door. He didn't want to talk about it because he's, he's evading me. He's avoiding, he's evading the issue and avoiding me. No, you had not asked enough questions. You're talking about a sheep that has gone over the hill. So you asked some more questions. Well, listen, I'd be really interested to know if, if you feel free to talk about it. Well, maybe we can do that sometime. Well, how about lunch tomorrow? Now you've asked enough questions, okay? And at lunch tomorrow, he made the date with you, he, and you just gave him fair warning, which is you're sticking your nose in his business, and he's still going to have lunch with you tomorrow. You got yourself a deal now. Now you drill down. And you just simply say, look, I know something's wrong, but there appears to be some reason why you don't want to talk about it. Don't you think it's important that we talk about it? You, you say, really, should I do that? If you've got a relationship with someone where they generally trust you, yes. If you don't, then it's your duty to find someone who has that relationship and get him to do the same thing. So you always want to approach people with people that they trust, like, and respect. If you can find somebody. Sometimes people don't trust, like, and respect anybody. But you usually will send someone they trust, like, and respect. Someone who they see as a spiritual shepherding type. And you should be one of those types. And you ask questions and listen carefully. And so sometimes they'll just say, well, you know, things aren't going so well in the home. But you know, the other thing is I just the teaching for some reason does, just doesn't satisfy me. Well, you happen to be the teacher, so now you've gotten really defensive, and so now you're going to talk about teaching. But you just heard him say something's not right at home. Whoa, listen carefully. There's your cue. He was passing over it and then attacked you. And you go on, instead of going in defense, say, look, you said something about the home. Can we talk about that? I, mean, I'm just, I really would love to know how to pray for you, how to help you, how to encourage you. So you seek people out, you ask them questions, and you listen very carefully to them. And then you, you obviously clearly state your concern. We've covered that. And then you persevere. Let me tell you about something. Uh, let me tell you something about people who go inactive in churches. The textbook uh, answer is as to how many times you have to make a contact with someone before it's successful, usually five or six times. Uh, the reason that it takes five or six contacts is that uh, most people will stop involving themselves in a spiritual community because they've been offended or they feel insecure or something else. And they're not going to tell you that usually the first two times you're with them. And this is the mistake that a lot of men make in their uh, attempts to reach out to people. People give us the brush off or avoid us. And we take that as the final answer. And, we, you know, we've got our own pride, and so we're not going to be pursuing them when they're trying to run away from us. But what the good shepherd realizes is he has a few sheep that are really obstreperous, and, and they just they wander, and they, just, they wander around, and they don't listen very much. And if you really love them, uh, you'll go after them. And some of you have, have reared some children, and some of you are those children, who are very strong-willed. And if you don't persevere with a strong-willed child, you're going to have a big mess on your hands. You better persevere. And we've got some strong-willed children in our churches. Let's persevere. That's what a good shepherd does. And here's the reason. Jesus loves every single one of them. Every one of them. 
So let's be sure that in our ministry to other people around us, we've got this, uh, we've got this mandate in mind. Let's move to verses 15 uh, through the first half of 17. And here we, we look not only at wandering brothers, but erring brothers. We must confront erring brothers. Brothers wander and brothers err. Err means to make a mistake or to commit a sin, to do something wrong. And we do it all the time. And we need to have a game plan for how to handle such. And Jesus gives it to us. And we have been forever trying to apply some other remedy that would be easier than the method he gives us. And it never works. He gives us the method that really actually works and builds unity and shows respect and helps people change their spiritual lives. And it's not our natural default position. So let's get ready. First of all, when a brother errs, we confront privately. We confront privately. If your brother sins against you, go and talk to other brothers about him behind his back. No. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. That's what we're supposed to do, brothers. How often have we been offended by another brother, and the first thing we do is to go to our close friend and say, I can't believe what Bob did. Or let me tell you about Joe so you can join me in praying for him. Or some other foolishness. The first thing we do is go talk to somebody else. Now, I, I know there are some complex situations uh, that where you, you really need counsel in how to approach someone. And I, I would say that that seems to be okay as long as you're going to a counselor that is mature and that will confront you and who will remind you that the biggest problem you've got in this relationship is you. And that counselor will focus upon you and what you need to do. If you've got a friend like that, you can always go even without names and say, I've got a brother in our church who did this, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And you can go for counsel, that's fine. But if you go to someone that you know in your conscience is only going to commiserate with you, then you've gone to the wrong person, and you're violating Matthew 18, verse 15. And you know what you're doing when you go, whether you're looking for someone just to be miserable with you and to sympathize with you and say, oh, yeah, I can't believe Bob did that. Or you're going to someone who's going to straighten you out and get you going in the right direction, someone who's willing to confront you and give you really godly advice. You know what you're doing when you go. So what happens normally is we'll go talk to somebody else, and here's the problem. You have slandered somebody else because, look, anytime there's a conflict, keep this in mind. If you happen to be a third party that someone goes to, keep this in mind. In any conflict, if some one party comes to you, at best, you're getting half the story. At best. And the half you're getting is distorted because the person is angry or hurt. So the half you've got is not even completely holistic. I won't say it's not true, 
but it's not whole. So a lot of things have been left out. And if you have any experience in mediating between people, you'll understand that when you get both parties in the room, you tend to get a fuller picture. And yeah, he said this, but it was in this context, and this is what he meant. Oh, okay. But when the other person quotes what he says, it sounds like this guy's an idiot. But you talk to this idiot, and he says, no, I'm not an idiot. He said, this is what I actually said. It was in this context, and this is what I meant. If I'd been cross-examined on it in the moment, I could have explained that. So you'll often, almost always, find that out in conflict. So if you're the one to whom someone comes, you've got to assume you only have half the story, and the half you have is distorted. And so you've got to get both parties together, even to have a hope of getting the full story that's undistorted. Sometimes I find it my duty to say to someone who's looking to me for counsel, if the name of the other person has been mentioned, to say to him, brother, look, I want to help any way I can. Here's honestly what I think you need to do. And let me just, I just want you to be, uh, uh, have your mind set at ease. I don't draw any conclusions about you, Bob, and you, and, and Joe. I don't draw any conclusions about y'all's relationship until I talk the two of you together. So don't, don't worry about having biased me uh, because I'm not drawing any conclusions. I'm saying that to him so that he doesn't think I'm commiserating with him or cooperating with his version. And that's important. And if you want to keep yourself as a godly man who's seeking to go after all the sheep, both Joe and Bob, then you will find that you want to be careful that you convey that to everybody around you. Because when you're dealing with Joe, you have to speak just as you would if Bob were in the room. And everything you say to Joe is not just because you love Joe, but because you love Bob too. And Joe needs to know you've got that commitment. And he needs to know that you're going to get, and, and listen, it will instill confidence in you when Joe sees how rigorously unbiased you are. I can, I can remember in, in church conflicts that I've observed through the years, I could go back in every one of those conflicts, and I'll point out to you two or three men who stood out in those conflicts. In every conflict I've ever watched, there have been people who have raised the Christian flag so high and for all the pain that I observed in people's lives through conflicts, I could thank God that I got to know the character of this man and that man and that man who showed how careful he was in the midst of turmoil. There are people who have cultivated that discernment and that, that self-control so that they don't just simply commiserate with someone. And you've got to be careful not to do that. In the moment... The person you're t that's talking to you wants you to trash the third party. But in the long run, you'll find it does not pay off, and it certainly doesn't honor the Lord. And so if you'll keep your head about you, you'll be a good mediator. Now back to the one who's been offended. The one who's been offended should only go, if at all, to a person like that, a godly person, and withhold the name. Why? Because you'll notice in Matthew 18, we are carefully protecting the reputation of our brothers. Yes, we're confronting sin, but we're doing it in the most discreet way possible or allowable. If we can affect repentance in each other's lives with a one-on-one -on -one contact, that's what we're going to do. So that nobody's reputation is smeared among the rest of the brotherhood. 
So you, you find that you're, you've got two things going on. One is you're vigorously approaching the brother who, whom you believe is in sin. Secondly, you're vigorously protecting his reputation so that if he repents in private, it remains in private and it doesn't affect anybody else and it doesn't affect the diminution of his reputation among everybody else. Christians should be expert at this. And I find it something that when, when done correctly, the Christian community has something to teach the rest of the community in, in our city uh, who don't follow by the same rules. But we must, and we should be setting an example for everybody else. So notice the first thing that we do is we go privately. Now let's talk about some steps to take. First of all, pray. Pray, pray, pray. Lord, help me. Give me wisdom. Help me to see the fuller picture. Maybe what I heard this brother say, I didn't really hear it. Maybe I just thought I heard it. Lord, give me a sound mind. Give me courage. Give me deep love for this brother who has offended me. Secondly, humble yourself. You'll find in Galatians 6, uh, verses 1 and 2, there is some excellent advice. And that advice tells us, that when we're restoring one another, we should be very careful. The Apostle Paul uses these words. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And he goes on to say, Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So be careful lest you be tempted. You'll find that if you're not really careful, you go to a brother who's offended you. He gets, he gets offended that you came to him, lays out some more criticisms, and pretty, sure, pretty soon you're just shouting at him, offending him. You weren't careful. You didn't pray adequately. You didn't ask God for protection. And you didn't humble yourself. What I've found is that whenever we enter a conflict with a brother that we should always assume that some more criticism is going to come our way. And a lot of it's going to be true. And this is one reason that men don't want to go directly to the person who's offended them because if they do, they know they're going to get an avalanche of criticism. And they don't want that. And so you can't enter into brotherly relations without humbling yourself and being ready to be corrected. Correction in the brotherhood always goes both directions. Iron sharpens iron. So anytime you enter a conflict resolution uh, circumstance, you are going, there's going to be some correction for you. And I know some guys get really surprised by this, and they get offended, and they weren't ready for that. Oh, I don't need this, and they check out. Rather than saying, well, tell me more about that. What, what is it I said before what you said that offended you? Will you forgive me for that? And then get back to your point. But then you realize you said this, and I was deeply offended by that. And it seems to me that you need to take responsibility for that and ask forgiveness for it. So the, but the first step is you have to humble yourself. In fact, normally when you go into conflict resolution, the best thing to do is go in with your list of things you're going to apologize for first. And you can't, so you cannot do this without humility. Thirdly, state your concerns clearly. 
It says in the scriptures, go and tell him his fault. State it clearly. And you should have in mind what about this offense is scriptural. What's the scriptural mandate that's been violated? See, the the things that we correct each other on is not that we put the fork on the wrong side of the plate, for heaven's sakes. There's nothing in the Bible about that, except that we should honor each other if there's something that has, you know, manners do make a difference. But, But when someone's spoken evil against you, there are several verses in the Bible you need to be aware of. There's been a violation of the Word of God. The definition of sin is any transgression or lack of conformity unto the law of God. So have in mind what is the will of God here that's been violated and be clear about that. And just say, Joe, look, I, I know I've contributed several things to, this, to the troubles we've had in our relationship, but the other day you did this. It seems to me that's a clear violation of God's will for us in our behavior. Now we're talking to a brother now, not to a non-Christian. Talking to a brother, trying to recover him. And then listen carefully and judge liberally. Listen carefully and judge liberally. What do I mean? After you've stated clearly what your concern is, what your offense is, listen to him. And pray God will give you good ears. You may get an earful. And you may need to take notes. Say, Joe, do you mind if I take some notes on this? Because I have a hard time remembering everything. And then if he says something and you're not quite ready to uh, deal with it, just say, can I have a a couple of days to think about this one? I need to contemplate what my motives were when I said or did this. Or I need to think about whether I agree with your assessment of my behavior on that. Can you let me think about it a couple of days? And I will. I'll pray pray it through. Uh, And then judge liberally. And what's meant there, you know, when someone confronts you, you can always tell, can't you? whether they are hoping that you're innocent or whether they're hoping that you're guilty. A lot of times when you go to someone, I mean, you don't know their motives. So you're just going to, with something you, they said or something they did, maybe there's a plausible explanation for this. And you can always tell with the person who approaches you whether they hope there's a plausible explanation or whether they hope there's not a plausible explanation and you're guilty. You know what I mean? Some people are angry at you and they want you to be wrong and want to see you grovel and have to confess and admit that you screwed up. And some other people are hoping that what they heard or saw has another interpretation that would explain it all. Please, be the latter. Be the latter type of brother. And stay in prayer until you actually hope that there's a plausible explanation for what someone did. So that when you're listening to them, you're ready to judge liberally. You're ready to give them every benefit of the doubt. If something can be explained away, let it be explained away. And you want to go with that mentality. If you're going with a prosecutor's mentality, you'll have a bad meeting. If you go with a judge's, a liberal judge's mentality, you're more likely to have a good meeting and more likely to reflect the liberality and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate judge. Fifthly, restore gently. And you do this by doing it alone, by not spreading bitterness, 
by going to the person and saying, look, I, I, there's, I have a bone to pick with you or I have an issue that I'm concerned about, and I want you to know that it, if, if you've done what I think you did, I've done the same dadgum thing myself. And, and, I, and I know how it feels. You know, I'm sorry if this is true. Let me just tell you what I, what I think I observed. And if so, I'm, I really want to help you because you've offended me and you've offended some other people. But I want you to know I, I'll be for you in every way I can to, to, to make restitution for this. Uh, and here's what it is. So you see the difference between that instead of, you know, I saw you do this and I'm sick of, you know. There's a difference between those two attitudes. So you restore gently. You're not the Lord. You're under the judgment of the Lord. And it's only by His grace that you're passing bar and that you're getting through. It's because He's imputed to you an alien righteousness. You get this? Alien. It's not your own intrinsic righteousness that gets you into heaven. It's an, it's a, uh, an alien righteousness that's been imputed to you. That's how you're getting in. So let's speak in a little bit lower tone, okay? I mean, let's lower the key here. Uh, you're a beggar who found bread. So let's not brag about what a great successful, successful man you are. No, you found salvation, which means you were rescued because you were helpless and hopeless. Okay, get it out all in your head before you go to this brother. And so you're going to be speaking in a very different tone. It's two, two louses talking to each other about how to experience God's favor. That's what you're doing. And it comes across very differently. And then lastly, I mentioned here, give adequate time. I told you a moment ago that in restoring inactive people, spiritually inactive people, it usually takes multiple visits. Well, what about this visit? None of us likes criticism. None of us likes to be confronted, and especially if everything about it didn't go so well. So you can just say, hey, Joe, uh, what if we get together next week? I'd really like for you just to be able to think about these things. And he may say, no, no, Sandy, look, what, what you've said is right on target. I'm so sorry. I, I just like to deal with it right now. I want you to know I completely confess what I've done. I ask your forgiveness. Well, fine. But normally people will need time. 70% of the population tend to be more process-type thinkers. It's only 30% of the population that tend to be what you call global thinkers, and they, they like to make quick decisions. You know, people who see A to Z, but they don't even know anything about EMN and O and P. Uh, most people are not like that. Most people like A, B, C, D, all the letters to be connected in the alphabet before they render their final decision. And so you would be wise to respect different uh, mental uh, styles and also graciously to allow time for the spirit to work in someone's life and don't take their first answer as their final answer. Please, write that down. Don't take their first answer as your final answer. Because when you confront someone, they're often angry and hurt themselves that you even approach them. And their first response is not going to be their... With most guys, their first response is not their best response. Give them time to have a second thought. So you can say, Joe, I understand how you feel. Uh, and you've given me some things to think about. Why don't you just think about what I said? I'm going to think about what you said. Let's get, to, get together next week. Give Joe a week to think about it. And he's very likely to come back with a very different answer to you. So don't, don't jump to the conclusion that now I'm going to go to the next verses in Matthew 18 and get two or three more guys involved in this. Hang on just a minute. 
Maybe just the two of you can still work it out. So you see what I'm saying? I think the intent of the text here is that if it's possible for the two of you to work it out by yourselves, give every opportunity for that to happen. It's only when you see that that's not likely to happen that you then move to the next uh, stage, which is B, verse 16, bring others if needed. But if he does not listen, and that listen means you know, to, not just to hear what you're saying, but to hear what you're saying and put it into practice. That's what listening is. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, he mentions the witnesses because what he has in view, if this doesn't work, we go to the church. We'll see that in a moment. And you need two or three witnesses who are outside of the bias of the conflict. If someone's offended you, you're both conflicted parties. He's the offender or the alleged offender. You're, you're the alleged offendee and, or victim. And you're both conflicted parties. You can't make a judgment in your own case unless you make it together. So you need witnesses, that is, other people who are not conflicted parties, who don't have any skin in the game, who are godly and who are observing what's going on. You need them to explain what's going on if you're going to take this case further in the church. But when we bring others if needed, here are some things to consider. First of all, explain to the offending brother or the allegedly offending brother your process and your intentions. So if I'm talking to Joe and Joe says, Sandy, you know, first of all, I don't even believe that what you're saying is true. And if it were, I wouldn't apologize anyway because you've done so many things like that to me. I just don't think I even need to apologize for it. You give him a week and he says, I don't want a week. That's what I think. You give him a week anyway, and the next week he says, don't even bother me. That's what I think. Okay, then what do you do? You say, Joe, look, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe that didn't really happen. And it's certainly true that I've sinned as much or more than you have. But uh, here's what the Bible's taught me, is that when the two of us can't be reconciled on alleged offense, that I should go get, two or th- I, I should get, get one or two other brothers that we both trust and get them involved in this. And so what I generally recommend, if, it, if it's, you know, it's a brother in Christ, and if you can get one person that you both like, trust, and respect, those three words are important, like, trust, and respect. The reason those three words are important is you're not going to be taking advice from someone that you don't like. You're not going to take advice from someone you don't trust, and you're not going to take advice from someone you don't respect. So it needs to be someone you like, trust, and respect, and it needs to be someone that he likes, trust, and respect, or that person is going to get traction with neither one of you. So normally you will explain the process to your uh, brother who's offended you so that he can enter that process, have some skin in the game himself, and influence who it is who's going to come to you. If he doesn't want to do that, then you just go on your own unilaterally and get the godliest person you can find. And that person contacts your brother and says, Joe, Sandy's told me that you all had a conversation and that he really and he explained to you that he would be calling me and I'm just calling to say, hey, can we get together? Now, Joe's not mad at him, so he can talk openly with him and, and he can, he can uh, the, you know, the, the one who's made the call can make a call as to whether there's something that needs to be pursued and usually there is. And he can convene the two of us together. So we're the warring parties, but this third party 
uh, just call him Bill. Bill is the one who's going to get us together and listen to both parties. Now, if Bill is wise, what he'll do is talk to Joe privately and talk to Sandy privately. And then when he's talking to Sandy, he'll say, Sandy, I hear what you're saying, but this is what Joe has said. And he challenges my story. And he says, Sandy, don't you think that you could drop this offense and just stick with this offense? So what Bill does if he's wise, he's, he's trying to find the way to get reconciliation between the brothers. Not in any way to dismiss a sin that, Bill, that Joe may have committed, but he's looking for a way to get these brothers together and reconcile the offense. He's also looking for what each party can learn and how each party can repent. So you explain to your brother the process and your intentions. And the intentions are that you want to be reconciled to Joe and you want Joe to be spiritually healthy and you want yourself to be spiritually healthy. And that's the reason you're doing this, because you love him. Because Jesus loves all of his sheep. And if they wander or they err, we're to go after them. Select this third party carefully. And I think I've mentioned enough about that for you to get an idea of what that party ought to be. And then thirdly, I mentioned pray. Pray, pray, pray. These things don't turn out well without the presence of God at work. Normally. It really takes an infusion of God's special uh, activity to reconcile these relationships. So we confront privately. We bring others if needed. Now, if Joe is still recalcitrant or what we call uh, uh, contumacious, then we tell it to the church. We tell it to the church. Verse 17a, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, every church has a different way for this to take place. In a Presbyterian church, we have elders who are elected by the church to deal with matters like this. And this is what we call church discipline. Church discipline has many aspects we'll see in just a moment, but the corrective aspect of it uh, formally is that the elders enter these conflicts. And the purpose of church discipline, of involving the church at large, number one is the glory of God. And you'll see with Joshua when he, when he confronts Achan, who has uh, some stolen goods, uh, he says, give glory to God and tell the truth. So when we tell the truth among each other, and we're reconciling relationships. We're glorifying God. That's the number one purpose. Secondly, the edification of the church. We saw this in Deuteronomy big time. But in 1 Corinthians 5, you'll see that we're told, get the leaven out of the lump. It spreads. Yeast spreads in the bread. Get it out. Uh, and you must cleanse or purge the evil from among you, as Moses says over and over again in Deuteronomy. Because there is an effect upon your family. If you have someone who has gone contrary to the family's will, then they are going to infect your family, and it, it involves the church. Thirdly, the restoration of the member. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a case there of a man who is taking up with his mother-in-law. Uh, and uh, Paul says, you can't have this. Even the pagans don't do this. And he says, expel the evil one from among you. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or two, you find, we don't know for sure that he's talking about this case, but it looks as though this man repented and Paul is encouraging them to take him back into the church. So you have three purposes of church discipline and they're all there. This makes 
your spiritual business in your church different from mere counseling. Counseling is extremely important. But if you're in the counselor's office, the only party he's concerned about is you. If you're in the church, we are concerned about you, the rest of the church, and the glory of God. And we deal with all three parties, uh, not just you and your psychological adjustment that's needed. Now look at the scope of church discipline. This is very important. Uh, This is an aside. But when we use the word church discipline, we're normally thinking of the formal correction that is in the church. That category that's in the bottom right, that would be the correction that the church If you're a Baptist church, that would be the the whole congregation. Or if you're a Presbyterian church, that would be the elders. That's what we call formal correction. But look at how broad church discipline is. Church discipline or family discipline, any discipline, includes both encouragement and correction. And psychologists tell us in a family, the healthy relationship of encouragement to correction is seven to one. Seven words of of encouragement for every word of correction. It should be at least that in the church. And also you see that we have not only formal discipline, but informal. What's informal? That's one-on-one. Not the elders, not a congregational meeting, but just one-on-one encouraging each other and correcting each other one-on-one. That's informal. And if you ask which of these is the most influential form of encouragement, I'll tell you which one is. It's informal encouragement. Uh, the most powerful form of discipline, I mean, is informal encouragement. The next would be informal correction. So the most powerful forms of discipline are the informal. It's not when you're having someone formally, by virtue of office, come to you and confront you. No, it's when the brothers are just together, dealing with each other like siblings in a good family. That's when it makes all the difference in the world. You say, well, if that's true, why should we even have formal discipline? Well, the reason you should, you'll notice that the effectiveness of informal discipline depends upon a formal structure being there. You go to your brother one-on-one. That doesn't work. You get another brother. That doesn't work. You go to the structures. If the structures are not there, then you don't have the leverage to get conclusion of the matter in the informal level. It's like the human body. Uh, we, We have to have skeletal systems, but we don't take pride in our skeletons. We present ourselves in our flesh, in our muscle tone. But if you don't have a skeleton, you fall on the floor like a heap of flesh, and you're not very attractive. So yes, it's n- we're not ectoskeletal, we're endoskeletal in our bodies. Same way in the church. Our formal discipline structures are endoskeletal. We don't advertise them. We don't talk about them all the time. But if they're not there, the body's not going to function. It's not going to have leverage. Lastly, we must censure contumacious brothers. There is such a thing as a censure. You know, in the halls of Congress, every once in a while, they'll censure someone for unethical behavior. Any body needs to be able, willing, uh, have the courage and the kindness to censure one another when necessary. And the reason we do this is we live according to God's will. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, that is, excommunicate him. If he refuses to, to listen... You excommunicate. Why? Because we live according to God's will. There are four church censures that are typically used. First of all is a formal admonition. You know, a group of elders can simply send a letter to someone admonishing them or call them into their presence and admonish them. We can suspend from the table for a season. 
You know, until someone repents, that they're suspended from the sacraments for a season of time. There can be deposition, not disposition, but deposition, D-E-P-O-S, deposition from office. In other words, if a, an officer has sinned unrepentantly, he can be deposed from his office. Or fourthly, excommunication. Those are the censures that are normally available to the church formally. Then quickly, we'll finish up. In verse 18, we see that we discipline with God's authority. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Gentlemen, don't take lightly the discipline of the church. When the church convenes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, carries out her judgments according to the word of Christ, and is depending upon Christ and prayer, when the church acts, God is acting. So be very careful about dismissing a church discipline too easily. Uh, thirdly, verse 19, we discern in God's community. He says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So we don't make these judgments privately. I don't make them privately. They're made, by, they're made corporately in the plurality of elders. Or if you're in a Baptist church, it's made by the whole congregation. So we don't make discernments about disciplining one another on our own, especially if you're a conflicted party. And then lastly, we act in God's presence. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So when we exercise discipline in our family, we do it in the presence of God, very aware of his presence. Gentlemen, you know that any family that simply talks about what's good and what's evil but never disciplines their family, that's not much of a family at all. What your family really believes, what your parents really believe, is what they disciplined you to conform to. That's what they really believe. They can talk all they want to. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But if they never discipline you, you drew the conclusion they didn't really mean what they were saying. Unfortunately, we have churches all across this country who are saying all kinds of stuff, and none of them are taking responsibility to discipline themselves based on what they're teaching their flocks. What you really believe is what you are disciplining your body to do and to be. That's the reason that it's important for every single one of us, not only to believe the truth, but to enact the truth in community. That's what Jesus is teaching for his disciples. Let us pray. Father, uh, thank you for this very important sermon from your son, Jesus Christ, and as your servants who have angels guarding and protecting us all the time, who are very precious to you, we pray that you'll help us now to be the ones who will carry it out with gentleness and humility and with zeal because of the glory of God, the edification of the church, and the value of every single brother. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.